Friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, Derek Nevins. Thank you so much for downloading and listening today. I really hope this conversation is going to um, just encourage you in your walk. Um, if you haven't already, go out to iTunes and leave us a rating or review uh, or Apple Podcasts is what I'm supposed to call. I still call it iTunes. It's okay. Uh, or wherever wherever you get your podcasts. That is helpful to us. Today, um, our guest is one of the most well-spoken people I've ever met. I'm trying to embarrass him. He's the author of Courtship in Crisis and the host of the creative funding show is Thomas Umstadt. Thomas, welcome to Halfway There. Eric, thanks for having me. And you have already embarrassed me. So congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. It's true, though. Every time you, uh, I've, I've seen you interact with people, the only thing people do is they nod their head and they go, wow, that's amazing. So not to set the bar too terribly high, but uh, I expect big things from this conversation. <laughs> oh, pressure's on. I know. I totally have. Totally ratcheted up. Well, anyway, yeah, so um, you are definitely, uh, you've got some cool things going on. I gave kind of that uh, brief one-sentence introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're doing now. So currently, I am uh, working with authors to help them uh, get the word out about their books through my podcast, Novel Marketing. So we share innovative strategies to sell more books. And then through the Creative Funny Show, I talk about how to um, monetize your following. So talk about Patreon and Kickstarter and other kinds of crowdfunding uh platforms. And then I have a podcast about culture and society and occasionally news and politics called <laughs> Liberty Buzzard, uh, where we get into kind of the less businessy topics uh, of the day. Yeah, that um, and you're so knowledgeable about that. So which is which is kind of interesting. Uh, maybe we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, yeah, thank you. So how many you have three podcasts? That's amazing. Yeah, sometimes it feels like too many podcasts, uh, but I'm actually in talks with a company to do a fourth podcast uh, that we haven't finalized the details on that yet. But, wow. uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time with a microphone in front of me. That's for sure. That's that's a good thing. All right, friends, I'll put links to all of those shows, all of Thomas's shows in the show notes at halfwaythereapodcast.com just to make it easy for you to find them. Um, or you can just Google it as per usual. Thomas, tell us a little bit about your story and kind of how you found Christ. Um, I think, if I remember right, you grew up in a Christian family, and you're from Austin, right? So, so there, in is that right? Yes, I yeah. grew up in Austin, and I grew up in a Christian family, and I had you know an early journey of uh, kind of discovering Christ. The metaphor my parents use, and I find this to be really helpful, is as you grow up. You kind of discover more rooms of your house, mm-hmm. right? Like, as you, you know, abstract reasoning and you become an adult, there's more of your life that you have to surrender over to Christ. So, as a child, like, you're living in just one room of your house and you give that room to Christ or Christ comes and inhabits it. But as you walk with Christ, he you know, comes into more and more of those rooms. And that is a never-ending process. You know, it's repentance. C.S. Yeah. Lewis talked about how the longer you walk with Christ, uh, the better you are able to repent. Uh, so often we think of it as this <laughs> thing you do one time at the beginning and then you're done repenting. And if only that were true. No, <laughs> right. I have to keep repenting. And um, I, I like to believe that I get better at it. Uh, very often it doesn't feel that that's the case. But uh, it is, it's, a, it's a process. It's a journey. 
Yeah, you. It was a pretty conservative family, is that right? Yeah, so I grew up homeschooled. Uh, my family was a kind of middle of the road homeschool family. So I have four brothers and sisters. There's five kids. So we didn't have ten kids, but we also didn't have two kids. So we're kind right. of middle of the world. And uh, we went through a, a very conservative phase when I was in middle school and and going into high school. And we were certainly surrounded by some of the most uh, conservative voices in uh, the homeschool community. Yeah. So Doug Phillips is a very conservative voice. I remember going to uh, some events at his like retreat center and Bill Gothard events, you know, Bill Gothard would come to town and we would go to that. And, and so very much a part of that very conservative stream of evangelical homeschool world. Yeah. The reason I asked that is because the metaphor of the rooms of your, of your life is actually Teresa of Avila, which is, is, uh, you know, she was obviously Catholic. So that's kind of an interesting interesting connection maybe maybe your parents didn't know about that but yeah that uh you know it, catholics have a lot of uh, great insight and they spend time <laughs> meditating i've noticed on different aspects of of the bible and yeah. different aspects of christ's character and i think that that uh yields different insights into god that can be very valuable yeah interesting okay that's may, may not be as profound as i thought it was but it was it was it's an interesting kind of metaphor to come to come from a conservative person. So, um, so I think that says a lot about your family. That's what I'm trying to say. So that's, that's cool. Uh, so you grew up in this Christian family. When did faith or your relationship with Christ become your own? So it, for me, I mean, there were moments like I prayed the prayer when I was three or four and then I was baptized uh, in water, and uh, I think I was 11, uh, 11 or 12. Uh, and, and that was a process of it becoming my own. Uh, leaving the house and kind of growing up and moving out, uh, you know, it became more of my own at that point. So I don't know if there was a like a moment where it's like, I own mm. this now. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I remember uh, before college, I, I came across which was Summit Ministries Worldview Camp, and I heard Mark Cahill speak about evangelism. And I got fired up for sharing the gospel and witnessing and passing out tracts. And so I was one of those kind of Jesus freaks in college, right? We'd be passing out tracts and sharing the gospel with anyone that moved, whether they wanted to hear it or not. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was what I was into in college. And, uh, you know, the, the act of sharing the gospel, I think, helps you own it as well. It definitely helped me own it. And, and uh, you know, being criticized and being persecuted and getting into discussions and debates with people, I think all of that was a part of that process of, of owning that faith. And in that process, I kind of picked up some things. Um, you know, I wasn't a part of the uh, prosperity gospel of, you know, if you follow Jesus, good things will happen and you'll be healthy and wealthy. But I did pick up a relational version of that uh, from the, that, you know, very conservative community. They actually believe in a form of the prosperity gospel, which is the relational prosperity gospel, which is if you do the right things, if you listen to the right music, if you wear the right clothes, God will bless your relationships. He'll give you a happy family. Your children will be respectful and you'll get married and stay married uh, for the rest of your life. And I, I didn't consciously realize I was believing that. And it was never stated that simply because if you state it that simply, it's obviously not in keeping with scripture, right? Jesus yeah. said, you know, father will turn against son and mother against daughter. And, um, 
you know, you'll face trials, tribulations, persecutions, and temptations. Yet, lo, I will be with you until the end of the age. Right? That's that's what the Bible says. But I, that's what I had had got to believe is this relational version of the gospel, and specifically around, around courtship. Right? If you court, if you kiss dating goodbye in court, you will have a happy, <laughs> happily ever after. Okay. Yes. So there's the first Joshua Harris reference. I kiss dating goodbye. Yes. Which. Um, okay. So. You, it sounds like you said you just kind of fell into this, like you just kind of like got into this group or what? I mean, it was in the water. If you're homeschooled in the late 90s, early 2000s, no, everyone gotcha. was into it. It wasn't something I sought out and it wasn't something even my parents sought out. It was just we were all reading I Kiss Take Goodbye and A Guide Writes Your Love Story and, you know, half a dozen other relationship books, each one more extreme than the last. And uh, it was what we thought was normal when everyone around you has kissed dating goodbye, you can't date even if you want to. (laughs) So, uh, you know, people who didn't even believe in it had kissed it goodbye just through lack of options. And I remember I was in a homeschool choir and one of the couples, one of the two, the people were a couple and it was this like scandal. It's like, how dare they be boyfriend and girlfriend in high school? It just seemed like this scandalous thing. And, uh, you know, our sense of normal was very skewed, I think. Yeah, really interesting. Okay, so what did that tell you about who God was, the whole courtship deal? Yeah, so the prosperity gospel kind of treats God as a a vending machine or or maybe more accurately an arcade. If you throw the ball in just the right way, if it lands in the correct hole, you get a certain number of tickets. And the better job – you do, the more valuable hole the ball lands in, the more tickets you get. And if somebody is suffering, if they are experiencing downsides uh, in their life, it's because they're not playing the game correctly. And this kind of God as an arcade machine um, was the temptation. Uh, and it was it was the view that we kind of slipped into and constantly trying to earn more tickets to earn a, a better, happier life. And, uh, you know, it's... It is true that God rewards his children and that he blesses his children, uh, but it's not something – and it is true, frankly, that you know consequences have actions. Actions have consequences. Yeah. Right? We reap what we sow. So it's not that that was untrue, but it wasn't the whole truth. And if that's where you're living, if that's all you're thinking about, and if that's what you limit God to in, in your mind, which is what I had done, uh, it really is limiting where you see God as this kind of cruel, capricious um, slot machine <laughs> that right. you're never able to you know, play correctly. And there's never enough tokens to put in the game. You never can throw the ball good enough. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't think that's necessarily – uh, exclusive to that group because you know a lot of us evangelicals less less conservative than that have a thing I call it the ATM God is my ATM you know like if you put in your faith card and you put in the right pin number of you know Bible reading and and prayer and holy ish living then out spit the blessings and you get to you get to go spend those and enjoy them or whatever and right. uh, and, God, and where that gets super toxic is if you uh, see somebody who is um, poor, somebody who is sick, uh, instead of having mercy and compassion on them, you're like, oh, well, if you were a better Christian, you'd be healthier. If you were a better Christian, you'd be wealthier and you twist it. Uh, And that's not the case, right? Sometimes famines happen and people are poor and hungry, 
because of no fault of their own. <laughs> you know, Job didn't do anything wrong to go through all of the suffering that he did. And it, um, our walk the world with God is more complicated than that. The world is more complicated than that. And the causation is not as clear as we would like it to be. We want this walk with Christ to be so simple. And, yeah. uh, you know, I do good things. God does it good things for me. And that is not the simplicity at the core of the gospel. Yeah. Wow. True enough. Okay. You were even blogging about this. It's true. I started a blog, practicalcourtship.com. It's one of the very first blogs I started, one of the first places I started blogging uh, because I wanted to make courtship work. I saw that it was the right way to go, and I saw that it wasn't, um, not very many people were doing it effectively. And most of the people around me were single and were staying single. A lot of them were, you know, 20, 23, 25, and never been in a relationship, 27, never been in a relationship. And I was like, there's got to be a more practical way to do this. So we started blogging about courtship and I had, I, I wrote articles. I had people writing articles and, uh, nothing was getting fixed. <laughs> and, um, I remember being very frustrated that nothing was being fixed. And there was this young woman that I was interested in and uh, I was calling her up and we'd talk about school. And at one point I called her up without talking about school. She's like, oh, well, for you to be in a relationship with me, uh, you need to talk to my father first. I you know, promised my parents that I wouldn't allow a, a young man to give me special attention without talking to my parents first. And so I was like, uh oh, here, here, now's the time for the conversation. So her dad and I went out to lunch. We, I went on a date with her dad <laughs> and, uh, he interrogated me, asked me for my goals and, um, he gave me some homework. I had to come back with a goal sheet. I think I had to bring my tax return and a lot of other information he wanted to check out, uh, check me out to make sure that I was worthy to court his daughter. And he put a lot of emphasis on the fact that this courtship was for the purpose of marriage. So I did that. I, I did my homework and I, I passed this initial screening and I'm entering now into a relationship for the purpose of marriage with a girl that I have never spent any time with one on one and never had a conversation with about something other than school. <laughs> so as you can imagine, this was a, a recipe for disaster, yeah. which is um, what happened, right? Because we didn't know each other. We didn't have any experience being in a relationship. She'd never been in a relationship. I'd never been in a relationship. And, you know, it was rocky. It was on again, off again. And as I would seek counsel from the people around me and, you know, my conservative friends, the thing they kept saying is like, oh, you're just not committed enough. If you committed <laughs> more to the relationship, these problems would go away. And uh, so then, you know, many months later, her family is moving away and she's planning to go with them. And I didn't want her to go. And I was like, what is the one thing I can do to keep her to get her to stay? She's an adult at this point and I'm an adult, but she's still living with her parents, which is very common in that community. There's this concept of being a stay at home daughter until you move from the covering of your father to the covering of your husband. And, um, I wanted her to stay. So I was like, well, I need to propose marriage. If I propose, then maybe that will be enough to get her to stay. So I, I call up her dad again. We'd been going on dates, uh, the two of us, in addition to the you know dates I'd been going out with her. And uh, I, so I, I get lunch with her. It sounds a little exhausting. You're, you're dating a lot of people here. Yes, it was lots of meetings. Uh, fortunately, he paid. So I guess he was the man <laughs> in our relationship. <laughs> uh, so I only had to pay for one set of the dates. Oh, my goodness. Um, but uh, anyway, we go out to lunch, and he then spends two hours 
telling me what a terrible person I am, which completely blindsides me. You know, I'm, I'm here with my heart in my hand wanting to uh, propose and uh, wanting to have his daughter's hand in marriage. And he's like, why on earth would I allow you to do that? And that was, I think to this day, the most difficult two hours of my life, right? My whole family's praying for me and I have to go back and tell them what happened. And to add insult to injury, he doesn't exactly say no. He's like, I don't think uh, you're a good fit for my daughter, but I'll ask her anyway. So she doesn't get proposed to by me. She gets proposed to by her dad, which of course no one wants to be proposed to by their dad. And of course she says no, <laughs> and I am devastated. And uh, one of the things that he criticized was the fact that the business that I had started, I started a company while in college and it was you know, going through a difficult patch and he didn't like the fact that I was an entrepreneur. He didn't like the fact that my business was struggling. He wanted me to get a good stable job with a big company. And, um, so I really took that to heart and I was like, I've got to prove this man wrong that I can be successful in business. And with the next business that I started, you know, we went through this intense season of growth. And for several years, I like cut myself off from relationships and just devoted myself to business. I was at the office all the time and there was a time when we'd be hiring a new person every month. We just couldn't get big enough, fast enough to prove him wrong in my mind. I kind of had the, you know, this man's voice saying I wasn't good enough. And, wow. um, finally I was like, uh, I woke up and I'm, I don't know, 25, 26. I haven't been on a date hardly yeah. since this happened. And, oh, hold on, hold uh, on. Go ahead. Cause I want to ask a question because, so you've got this man, this, whether you intended for him to be a father figure in your life or not, he sort of played that role. And, so it gives you this idea that you're not good enough. How did that affect your relationship with the Lord? Yeah, it's a great question. And I really felt like I had failed the Lord. Uh, that, yeah. Because if I had been a better Christian, if I had courted in a more Christian way, it wouldn't have ended in failure like this. This failure uh, was obviously an indication that I uh, had had done it wrong. Because if I were a good – these sorts of bad things don't happen to good Christians <laughs> Great. Uh, was, was my thinking. And uh, so I, I really went into a dark place of blaming myself and just feeling very guilty and feeling very evil because, you know, I've given my heart away to this woman that I'm not marrying and there's, you know, no way to get that back and I'm now damaged goods. And all mm. of this language from this culture is kind of haunting me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think this would be a good time to talk about um, Rebecca Lemke because she wrote a book called The Scarlet Virgins just about that, right? Those, that kind of language. And uh, you, you were on her podcast not too long ago. I'll throw a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Yeah. So we, uh, along with courtship culture is this other culture called purity culture. And it's very similar in many ways. And it really advocates purity and specifically staying pure until marriage. And which is really toxic language because it basically is saying that sex is impure. And as soon as you have sex, you're no longer pure, even if you do it in the context of marriage. And that is not what the Bible teaches. There's an entire book of the Bible that is nothing but a celebration of sex or the whole thing is a celebration of sex start to finish. There's a lot more to it than that. Uh, Song of Solomon is very rich and layered, kind of like sex, actually. And 
that's not what the Bible teaches, but that is what purity culture teaches. And it also teaches that purity is something that you have and it's something that you can lose. And the reality of the gospel is that it is not something that we have. None of us are pure. No, not one, right? We are yeah. all fallen short of the glory of God, and our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the only way that we can become pure is through Christ, and he is our purity. His blood covers our sins. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and we wear Christ. He's our uh, mm. you know, white robes of, of holiness. And the uh, purity culture just didn't teach that. And it was like, well, once you lose your purity, it's gone. And that is just not the Bible. It's not what the Bible says. Um, and, and, uh, but, it, but we were so wanting to not have sex before we get married. Cause that was, you know, the big push that, well, maybe if we're going a little overboard, it's okay. As long as people don't have sex before they get married. And, and it, what it ends up being is it really distracts people from the gospel and makes people very angry with God. Cause, um, they see him as being very cruel hmm. and they just have a wrong understanding of, of the gospel because of this purity culture. And what's interesting is that many of the people who were preaching that purity gospel have either fallen in such a way where they no longer have a platform or they have repented from that message. Wow. Uh, so now there's hardly anyone who is still preaching the purity gospel. It's very fascinating how, how God has brought those people low um, or or change their hearts. Yeah. And it's just not preached. It'll be preached again. There's nothing new under the sun, but right now uh, there's no one very loudly preaching that gospel. Interesting. Dude, I did not realize that purity culture and, and the courtship thing was, were two different things because the language so, is very similar. They are very similar, but there was a version of the purity culture that existed in churches that didn't have a homeschool community and didn't really embrace the language of courtship and didn't have chaperones all the time and the rules of courtship, but they still had the teachings of the purity gospel. Interesting. Um, so there, there is overlap. Uh, and I would say the purity movement is bigger than courtship. Pretty much the whole courtship movement is inside the purity movement, but the purity movement expanded beyond homeschoolers and beyond courtship to uh, basically all Christian young people, right? To true love waits, uh, you know, it was oh, the big yes. push and taking vows and uh, <laughs> wearing purity rings. I wore a purity ring for years and years, and I was very much a part of that. Yeah, interesting. Okay. So, yeah, thank you for, and you, you, talked a little bit about how this is not really what the Bible teaches at all. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. You eventually got kind of disillusioned with the whole thing, even though you're writing about it you have this blog and you're kind of pushed public publicizing it. Right. You eventually kind of got a little bit, you're like, no, wait, maybe there's something better. How'd that happen? Yeah. So several couples in our extended community uh, that had courted went through divorces and it was this huge shock because that was not the deal. The deal was right. if you go through this really difficult, terrible, and awkward process, the prize at the end is a lifetime happy marriage. And the result is – the reality is that that's not true at all. In fact, uh, 
later on in the story, I, I get hundreds of people sharing their stories with me and it turns out courtship is actually a really terrible way for matching <laughs> up young people. And a lot of courtship relationships end in divorce. It's not at all uncommon. Uh, so the idea of like reducing divorce rates with courtship didn't prove out, uh, statistically as a, you know, valid promise. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't know any of that yet, but I did start to ask questions. I'm like, maybe this isn't really the answer. And I thought back to uh, in the early days, who are the people who are the most outspoken against courtship? They were my grandparents. And I still had one grandparent uh, alive. And so I took my grandmother out to dinner and asked her about how they did it back when she was a kid because she got married very young. She was 18 when she got married. She stayed married until her husband died and she was going on more dates than all of my friends put together. (laughs) Uh, Her husband had been dead for 15 years and she was going on two or three dates a week with different guys. She had this vibrant romantic life and uh, that was healthier and happier than any of my Christian single friends, um, either guys or girls. And so I'm like, okay, something is there's there's something I can learn here. So I took her out to dinner and I learned how they did it back in the day. And she talked about how her father had two rules for her. One was don't stay out too late. So when she was in junior high, which is what they called middle school in those days, she when she would go on dates, she had to be back by 10. And in high school, I think it was a little bit later than that. And the other rule, and this is what blew my mind, because it was so different from what yeah. I've been taught in courtship, but it was that she was not allowed to go out on a date with the same guy twice in a row. So they had this language called going steady. She wasn't allowed to go steady in middle school and, and or in junior high in the early years of high school. So she wanted to go. She went out with Bob on Tuesday. She had to go out with Bill on Thursday before she could go on the dance with Bob on Saturday. And by the time she was 18, she knew which Bob she wanted to marry. And she married Bob Umstadt. And you know, the rest, <laughs> as they say, is history. And this just seems so foreign to me. But as I thought about it and as I asked her about it, it made sense. Because if you're going out with different people, it keeps you from giving your heart to any one of those people and like picking out wedding dresses in your head. Right. If if when somebody asks you out for coffee, that coffee is for the purpose of marriage. You know, before you are saying yes to coffee, you are trying out wedding dresses, you're trying out the guy's last name, and things are very intense right away. And that intensity uh, makes um, problems in the relationship. Yeah. And I was like, gosh, this sounds amazing. This sounds fun. Because she had a twinkle in her eye when she talked about (laughs) going out on dates. And, you know, they didn't have the kind of physical compromise because there wasn't that expectation. That exclusivity um, leads to an expectation of a physical relationship that they didn't have back then. And I was like, well, gosh, I want to be able to try this. But then I was like, I can't. I'm Mr. Courtship. I'm the guy who runs the blog, practicalcourtship.com. If I ask a girl out on a date, she's going to be trying on those wedding dresses before I'm done even asking her. (laughs) So I was like, I'm going to have to publicly say that I no longer believe in and courtship for me to be able to, you know, honestly do this, be able to ask girls out without them misinterpreting what I'm saying. So I write up this blog post that kind of puts together all of my insights, talking with people through the practical courtship blog and talking to my grandmother and kind of making the case for what I came to call traditional dating, this way of dating that they did it uh, before dating and going steady came to mean the same thing. And uh, so, and I was like, if I can get 
10,000, 15,000 people to read this blog post, I should be good. I can ask girls out and people won't misinterpret it. And I post it and I get 10,000, 15,000 views within the first day. And then it gets 50,000 views, then 100,000 views. And this blog goes viral. And by the end of a month, it had been viewed in every country but North Korea and read over a million times. And Facebook was just blowing up with discussion. And a church in my area had an emergency Bible study to discuss the (laughs) blog post because I was challenging the fundamentals of the relationship uh, model that this whole community was using. And I had on my side an entire generation of young people who weren't married and wanted to be because that was like the biggest flaw of courtship. And the the blog post was why courtship is fundamentally flawed. And the biggest flaw was that it didn't work. It left most people single most of the time. Didn't fail for everyone all the time, but it did fail for most people most of the time. And those people that it was failing – were very loud advocates. And there was this huge debate. The whole community had a debate for like a month. And I had people writing blog posts. Why courtship is not fundamentally flawed. Part one of seven. And oh my do, gosh. Or part one of eight. And they do, you know, blog post after blog post critiquing the the post uh, that I made. And um, wow. it, I was kind of in the eye of a storm there for a while as everyone was having this epic debate. And people were asking me to write a book about it. In fact, I had a Catholic priest uh, in the comments was like, you should write a book about this. And some pastors are saying I should write a book about this. And um, I was like, oh, I don't want to do that because I work with authors professionally. I know how much work it is. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, But I did. uh, Well, what I did is I said, okay, I'll put it on Kickstarter. And if you fund it. Uh, I'll write the book. And the readers of the blog raised $11,000. And (laughs) I I ended up having to write the book, Courtship and Crisis. And uh, one of the readers of Courtship and Crisis sent a copy to Joshua Harris, uh, the guy who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he has since changed his position on dating and courtship. (laughs) He came out with a documentary, uh, I Survived I Kissed Dating Goodbye, that's kind of looking back on the effect I Kissed Dating Goodbye had on culture. And, and on society, both good and bad. And, um, and the documentary is kind of Harris's journey of, uh, you know, revisiting this topic. And I, he invited me to be on the documentary and we've gotten to be friends. Like I have a lot of respect for Joshua Harris because he really does want to see God glorified. And he did not intend all of the consequences uh, to come out of uh, the courtship movement, which he was a part of. He wasn't the worst voice. Uh, People often blame him for everything because he was the coolest one, (laughs) but he was (laughs) not the most extreme voice. But he was the one that kind of introduced courtship to the mainstream. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that um, book coming out and being kind of a big deal um, when I was dating but uh that that uh i never read it though and the um but josh mcdowell is kind of the big thing right that true love waits kind of thing sort of in that same same vein but it's true uh those are all connected and and to be fair there's nothing wrong with waiting to get married to have sex i think that that is the biblical like what the Bible teaches. And, and I think that that is a value that we need to strive for and we need to advocate for. Uh, but we need to do it in a biblical way. You can't just do the right thing. You have to do the right thing in the right way. And twisting the gospel to do something that seems like a good thing is still twisting the gospel. And twisting the gospel makes it wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> if you are advocating for waiting until you get married, and the way that you're advocating for that is by twisting the gospel to make it say things that it's not saying, that that is... Um, very toxic. Yeah. 
I love that. Twisting the gospel makes it wrong. Yes, and amen, a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> Paul would say so. Jesus would say so, uh, and we should say so. So I like that. That's that's fantastic. Okay, so you write this amazingly, uh, you know, viral blog post. If you could help me write one, that'd be fantastic. By the way, but uh, we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, the you know, you become friends with Joshua Harris. So that's cool. So you, and you move on. So how, how, like, what did, what did sort of being liberated from the courtship model, breaking up with it, if you will, what did that do for your, your trust in God? So, um, breaking up with it was kind of a, the, of courtship was kind of a slow process. So people really close to me weren't surprised by the blog post because my thinking kind of evolved over time as I was talking with my grandmother. Uh, the bigger impact on my walk with Christ was the blowback. <laughs> so oh, I had suddenly thousands of people hating on me online and, you know, a, a level of hate that I hadn't really experienced before. Uh, you know, I'd received hate online and in some ways very sharp and pointed hate, right? I'm not, um, this wasn't the first time for me to interact with trolls, but it was the first time for me to act with people who were acting like trolls who were my friends. I had, you know, I, to this day, I have friends who don't talk to me, you know, friends from college who are very much part of that purity wow. culture who think that I have betrayed the gospel because that's the, you know, the purity gospel is, is what they mm. adhere to. And, um, you know, friends of my mom calling for me to have a millstone tied around my neck and for me to be cast into the sea. I mean, my mom is on Facebook and everyone is talking, or at least on her Facebook, everyone is talking about my blog post. And a lot of them are very angry and very mean. And it's really difficult, uh, navigating that. Some people are really nice. Some people are really mean. And, you know, the angry stuff, bubbles to the surface, right? If three people say, I love the post and one person says, I think you're a, not a, I think you're an antichrist for writing this post. The antichrist one just seems louder. Yeah. And, uh, in that process, God was very near to me, right? As I was getting all of this hate, like the love of God was like a warm blanket around my shoulders and experiencing his love in the midst of that hate. It was, um, very much like um, the Psalm 23 and like, you know, bringing th through the valley of the shadow of death and preparing a meal for me in the presence of my enemies, right? Like your enemies are right there and yet God is, is feeding you in that. And um, Psalm 23 really became both in that season and then later a really powerful um, passage for me because God didn't say, I will not take you through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. That's, that's not the gospel. That's not what happens in the Psalm. Right. Uh, but in the shadow of the, in the valley of the shadow of death, God's rod and his staff comfort us and they guide us and he keeps us safe and he anoints us with oil, which is, um, as, as, you know, new Testament Christians, we realize it's the Holy spirit, right? That he gives us his Holy spirit. And, um, that is what sustains us in this, that Valley of the shadow of death and realizing that we can go to those dark places and experience that darkness and not have to be afraid of the darkness because he's with us. Like that was very powerful. In fact, I had uh, a friend of mine who was an artist. I commissioned her to draw like, or to do a painting of 
that passage of God being with us in the valley of the shadow of death because it's I didn't have any good paintings on it and at, at the time I could afford it and so I have it I actually have it uh, here in my office I can show it to you but uh, you know just to remind me that in the darkness uh, Christ is with us and um, you, you know you never really know that God is with you in those dark places until you go to those dark places and you experience God being with you. Oh, so true. And it's such a formational event, right? When you, you have to experience that, you go through that, um, you know, you call it a dark night of the soul or the wall period of, of the spiritual journey. Um, but it sounds like you came through on the other side and God was, was close and you were more intimate with him. I was. And, um, also, the process of digging through this, as I because I continued blogging on courtship and you know the writing the book, really researching. I mean, there was a time when I was writing the book and talking about some of my failures. And I'm just weeping as I'm writing as God's you know wow. ministering to me because I'm having to revisit these painful moments in my past. And I write about this you know quote unquote failed courtship in the book. You know, I share that story right off the bat. Obviously I don't use anyone's names. Um, but, uh, that process was a healing process for me as, as God kind of visited me in those, in those areas of pain and gave me strength, you know, to move forward and, and to go on dates, right. The, I will say having a blog post go viral really makes dating easier. <laughs> all <of> the, <laughs> the first dates were all the same conversation. Everyone wanted to tell me what they thought of the blog post, uh, that's uh, but awesome. it was, you know, it was a great experience. And, and I will say the result has been in my community, people are married now, like that kind of block that was holding everyone back. Uh, a lot of people are married, even if they didn't buy in to, you know, traditional dating, which didn't take off, uh, p- people still were seeing and like, okay, you know, staying single, this, uh, is not this, um, you know, thing to be cherished. Cause one of the things that purity movement teaches is that mm. there's this season of singleness and that God calls us to a season of singleness. And that is taking spiritual language and christening a social cultural phenomenon. <laughs> that is yes. not what the Bible teaches as arrows are in the hands of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. <laughs> it's like, right. you know, what do you do in a culture? What does uh, Paul teach us to do in a culture saturated with sexual content, right? The Corinthians had pornography all over and people are sleeping all over. Yep, do you say, Oh, you need to wait to get married. No, he says, get married. Yeah. <laughs> like that is the solution, right? That is the biblical solution. That is the path of escape from a lust filled culture. And yes, some people are called to be celibate, right? For their lives. Like Jesus was. But uh, you it and and you can say that there's a season for everything. So it, you know you can make a case from Ecclesiastes that there's a season for everything. Sure. But the, that there's this season of singleness that everyone should go through uh, is not supported in Scripture. <laughs> it's yeah. not wow. the teachings of Scripture. And uh, as that kind of crumbled, people realized, oh, maybe I should get married. And uh, there is benefits to to getting married. And and I highly recommend marriage. And uh, and and seeing more people get married, at least in, in our community, uh, is, is very uh, – it makes me happy. And I do realize some of that is just people getting older. And, you yeah. know, they're more likely to get married. Uh, millennials are putting off marriage, and that's true in the church as well as uh, in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, so we don't have to go into it too much, but you did eventually get married yourself and that's fantastic. Yes, I, I did. I got, I got married. The, you know, the work that God did in, in my heart during that process gave me the courage to actually take a risk. And I went steady uh, with one of the girls I'd gone on dates with and we are uh, happily married now and we're expecting a baby uh, in the next few weeks, actually. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah. Congratulations. We're very excited about that. Thank you. That is an exciting time, and uh, man, enjoy every single minute because it goes fast, brother. You won't sleep; it won't feel <laughs> fast, but it will be fantastic, and it does. That you know what? I sometimes look back at that time period where where you are right now, where you have you know you still have no idea what it's like to have a baby, and you know you're kind of anticipating. It's it's really a sweet time. So anyway, enjoy it. Thank you. I'm I'm nervous, but also excited. So yeah, uh, well. <laughs> the, that sounds right. That's, that's, <laughs> that's good. Cool. Well, t- take us through. So thank you for giving us all of that. I think it's really fascinating what that culture, how that kind of shaped your ideas about God and your ideas about yourself in Christ. Right. And then also how God, you know, kind of leaving that, how God, how you found your relationship with him to be a lot closer. Um, what are you doing? Like bring, bring us up to, to date as far as, um, you know, what your, what your kind of businesses are and, and, uh, all of that. You have these podcasts. How'd you get into podcasting? Fill us in on some of that stuff. So I've, I've always loved, uh, podcasting and radio. You know, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh when I was seven yeah. years old. I remember running into the room and being like, dad, dad, it's open line Friday. <laughs> Cause he had the <laughs> sound effect of all the yeah. people cheering. And I thought it was this really big event. And he was just thought that was the funniest <laughs> thing. Uh, so I, I've been influenced by talk radio from a really young age. And I just enjoy uh, the connection with listeners and the um, fact that since it's verbal, it exists exclusively in the arena of ideas. Uh, and yeah. that's just really fun. Podcasting being this discussion of ideas. And uh, I, I enjoy discussing ideas and, and talking with people and getting pushback. And um, at Liberty Buzzard, the one on culture has been really fun because the guy I host it with is a, from a very different perspective, right? I'm the city boy who drives a car and he's a country guy who drives a truck and walks in boots and lives on the edge of civilization. Yeah. I, well, I really enjoy that. And in terms of business, you know, we mentioned the creative funding show, helping people fund their project, kind of like a funded courtship crisis. And I've funded or helped people fund lots of books and lots of other kinds of projects like that. And I've funded other projects and uh, for people who have something they want to take to the world and change the world with, but they don't have the money to do that. Crowdfunding can be a really great way uh, to, you know, fix that problem and test to see if the world really wants what you're making. And if it is suddenly, you now have the money to, to make it. And the creative funding show is all about that discussion. Yeah, really cool. So that's one that needs to be on my list of things to, <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> No. Yeah, if you're wanting to help fund uh, the Halfway There podcast, uh, we hey. talk about funding of uh, podcasts on the show. Right, so. absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've I've toyed with the idea of doing a Patreon for for a while, and I just don't know quite what to do. So maybe you can give me some ideas. But yeah, or those of you listening, you know, what do you want from Eric? What more do you want from him that you're not getting right now that you'd be willing to pay for? <laughs> right, so, that's the key. So, send hey. in send in your feedback. No joke. I love, I mean, I love doing the show, so I do it because I love it. But uh, yeah, and you know, at a certain point, the family's got to eat and 
so I love that you're that you're doing it. It's so fascinating that you you know, were like, no, I'm not going to write this book unless it gets funded. Did you set the the bar like super high, thinking a number that you felt like, oh, this will never happen? I did. I mean, I set the goal at ten thousand dollars, which is a lot of money to spend on making a book. Now, to be fair. I hired a lot of professionals with that money. <laughs> so yeah. the book ended up being very good. I had a manuscript developer, I had three different editors, I had a cover designer. I mean, there's, there's two pages of credits in the back of the book of all the different people who contributed to it. Wow. Um, either that I paid or who contributed financially to help it uh, exist. And because um, I, I knew how difficult the book would be emotionally to write, how much work it was going to be. And I didn't want to write something that ultimately no one really, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you should, you know, write a book. But it's another thing to say, you should write a book and I'd like to pay for it now to get it later. Right. Like that's a way of calling people's bluff (laughs) because (laughs) uh, if they're saying you should write a book just to shut me up. So I'm busy writing the book instead of writing on the blog. And I want to know that. (laughs) And the only way to know is to ask for money Uh, because the haters will criticize, but they will not pay. Uh, something I have learned. <laughs> Nobody hate pays for something. Uh, they may hate watch and hate read, but only if it's free. <laughs> so True. very rarely will somebody pay for something just to criticize it. Oh, that's a good insight. Wow. That's awesome. All right. And, and what is your business? Like you have, tell, tell us more about that. You said you help, you help authors do this as well. Yeah. So I, um, my company that I started, uh, help building websites for authors. We still host a lot of author websites. That's a a good part of my revenue. We also build plugins to help authors sell more books on their websites. And then I do consulting. And so I do, you know, hourly consulting with folks. I have a lot of different sources of of revenue, bring in some money from Patreon and create some courses. I've I've structured my life in such a way where no one person can fire me, (laughs) which is good because actually just this week I was fired from Amazon. They changed their, um, terms of service and uh, one of our plugins that got brought in a lot of its money from Amazon uh, is now no longer eligible for that program. So I just lost a big chunk of my monthly oh, revenue, wow. but I didn't lose the whole thing because of how it was structured. Uh, right. So. Yeah. The just, average millionaire has seven streams of income, right? That's so you, maybe you're not verging on that, but that's true. It's the truth. Like you gotta, you gotta diversify yeah, and it talks about that in the Bible, actually. In Ecclesiastes, there's two different passages about diversification. Um, one is about uh, work hard in the morning and stay busy all afternoon because you don't know from which your profit will come, one or the other or both. And I always kind of think of that um, passage as like somebody's plowing their fields you know, in the morning and they're farming, which is high risk, high reward, right? The weather could come and, and the crops die and you make nothing or the weather could hurt somebody else's crops and suddenly your crops are super valuable, right? You it's, you don't know. And then you're like a handicraft person, right? You're carving wood or doing something where it's more reliable in the afternoon. Um, I've, been, I've tried to structure my business that way. And in the Creative Funding Show, we talk about diversifying your income and how to do that as a creative person. So you're not getting all of your money from Patreon backers and or all of your money from advertising revenue from YouTube on Google. Right? So right. You don't want your income to be solely dependent on some tech company who doesn't care about you or know who you are. <laughs> right. Because the moment you set up a business selling, helping people with Facebook ads, 
they change it and the whole thing is gone. Right. So, right. Or they make it illegal for you yeah. to, you know, sell that service. And if they catch you, right, they ban you from Facebook or, you know, you never know what, what will happen. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, Thomas, you know what? I said that this conversation would be insightful and interesting and you've delivered upon every promise I made and didn't tell you about. So thank you very <laughs> much. Um, I appreciate you sharing your story. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, just the, the final thing is don't be so dazzled with the power of sin that you forget the power of the blood of Christ. Amen. Go. Uh, oh, yeah. Amen. So, Preach it. So <laughs> just that, like the, the purity <laughs> movement was so dazzled with how, powerful sin was and how evil sin was that they forgot that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world and that light is ultimately stronger than darkness and that when uh, we are filled with the spirit uh, we do not have to be afraid uh, either of the terrors at night outside or the terrors within right yes. like christ is enough and I, I think that you know we know that but it's something we constantly have to be reminded of it's something i have to constantly be reminded of Absolutely. The gospel, my friends, starts in Genesis 1, not in Genesis 3. And that is a very important distinction. Those two chapters start there every single time. Uh, friends, you can get, like I said, links to Thomas's podcast, all three of them. I don't know how he keeps up with all those. Uh, I even put a link to his book in Amazon and his viral blog post if you want to go check that out. So you guys can check check all that at halfwaytherepodcast.com. As always, go ahead and uh, leave a rating or review in iTunes if you would. Um, I would sure appreciate that. Help us get the word out about the show. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for being here. I really am so glad to have met you, and uh, I hope that uh, we can we can stay friends from two states away. <laughs> for sure. Thank you, Eric, for having me on the show. This is fun. You bet. Well, hey, friends, as the music wraps up here, I just wanted to let you know that I put together a little thing for you. I've talked about it before, um, but I want you to jump on it if you haven't already. It's called, it's an ebook, and it's called What to Do When You're Mad at God. And here's the thing yeah, every guest, we always ask that question about what, what was a time when God felt far away uh, or a crisis for you. There's a lot of reasons that you might feel that angst, or maybe you don't. But uh, you just have this kind of curiosity about why is God not there for you? Um, that's what it's for. And so it gives you a really great uh, three-step plan that comes from Scripture about how to engage with God when you're feeling distant or angry with Him. Um, it's It really is something that I've never heard anybody teach before, and I hope that it'll help you in your journey. So if you would... Go to just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. Actually, right there on the front page, you can you'll see it. You'll see the the picture. You'll see the whole thing. You can sign up, and then uh, I can also keep you updated about episodes of Halfway There. Friends, thank you so much for listening. You have no idea how much that means to me, and I'm glad that you have listened to this episode. Hey, thanks a lot. Goodbye.